0: week of March 7th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox episode 532, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling-Reich. And outside Buckingham Palace, I'm Michael Giltz. Oh, wow. So you somehow made
1: it to the UK. If we want ratings, we want to deal with the Royals. We're going to have a member of the Royal family on our show next week. Make sure you tune in.
0: It's going to be the 15th royal to the left who was maybe, doesn't even have a title. I don't know anything about Uh, the royals, really, other than they they had some interview last night. That's what I remember.
1: Very good. That's right. Oprah interviewed Meghan and Harry. 17 million people watched in the United States. It will air tonight, Monday, the day we're recording on ITV in the UK, and it's going to play all over the world. People will know what's going to be said, but they're going to watch anyway. Big, big ratings.
0: Now, I saw uh, a bunch of stuff on Twitter about uh, – and it was with pictures of the queen, and she looked like she was sitting at a computer on a Zoom call that she, like, went live yeah. to try and combat some of the thi- – I was like, is no, no, that no. true it was, or is No, it
1: was it- – no, no, no. It was the day of the Commonwealth, an anniversary. They celebrate the Commonwealth. Countries like Australia and Canada are part of the Commonwealth. And so they had a naturally uh, uh, already prearranged ceremony taking place that day. It had nothing to do with trying to counter the interview. Ah, okay. No, it's just normal, normal things going on at the palace. But 17 million people tuned in. In contrast, I wish we'd known this last week when we talked about the Golden Globes. Wow. Viewership fell to an all-time low in the key demo. Seven million viewers tuned in. Uh, They did worse in 2008. That was the year where basically, because of a writer's strike, they held a press conference. (laughs) So that did draw recent viewers. But in recent years, that is the worst that they have done in a long time. Why? Because no NFL. The NFL was not leading into the Golden Globes, and that huge audience was clearly very important. So I don't think this has anything to do with... Who they nominated, or the group, or its tarnished image, or anything like that. NBC is paying sixty million dollars a year, or about this year nine dollars per viewer. <laughs> wow, that's what they—that's what they paid this year. But next year, I am sure they will be back on top with that NFL lead-in. We'll find out that that this was really just a a, a one-off bit of confusion, just like the writers' strike year. It's not any reflection of the Globes. People did not say, "I'm not tuning in because." They're paying their members money to watch movies. <laughs> that that didn't happen.
0: Well, you know they have seven million viewers, seventeen million viewers tuned in to watch Oprah talk to. Not even royalty anymore. They're not royalty, Meghan and Harry. They're well, former. They are. Royalty.
1: You're, all, you're always royalty. I'm There's kidding. Some, yes. Well, no, I'm just. That's not a joke because some people think they're not, but no, they are still royals. They just don't have the rights to certain titles, et cetera.
0: And, and I think they're if not, you If you combine they're not those,
1: part of the firm.
0: Yeah. What? Yes. Well, if you combine those two numbers, seventeen and seven, you get the number of people listening to to this show, twenty four. Not million, just twenty four people. That's is that? Oh, I thought was (laughs)
1: adding up all the years, maybe together. But uh, there are people listening. What are we going to talk about this week?
0: Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we have a lot to talk about. You know, movies are opening in actual theaters, not just on televisions, and they're even opening in New York City. Awards are being handed out, though not to us. So it seems like old times. Keep your masks on when going out, okay? We're we're not done with this pandemic thing yet. But things are getting better. The Critics Choice Awards were handed out and it was more good news for Nomad Land. That's nice since the film received bad news from China. We'll also cover other award news like the PGA nominations and preview the Grammys by asking Michael what his favorite albums were from 2020. Or I guess no, we're only gonna talk about one of the albums, I guess. We'll find out. Uh, And inside baseball, we are going to be joined by Ryan Fonder, an entertainment business writer at the Los Angeles Times and the force behind The Wide Shot, an L.A. Times newsletter that launched earlier this year. We'll discuss the newsletter and why the battle for supremacy in streaming is like March Madness in college basketball. Maybe we can also ask him what the word flywheel means. And you know what? (laughs) If you want to know why that's a joke and why that's kind of funny, stay tuned. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office.
1: That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. This is for the week ending March 7th. And this week, India will come back online. So we're very excited about that. A couple movies will be released in India on March 11th. I don't know what the capacity will be or things like that. uh, So we're eager to hear and find out what they do and how well they do compared to before. But we are looking at the box office right now. And the number one movie around the world is Hi, Mom a time travel comedy from China. It made another $45 million. It's at $850 million worldwide. This looks like it's going to get to a billion dollars. Where's the remake? I can see it coming. And number two around the world is Raya and the Last Dragon, the Disney film that opened to about $26 million worldwide. It didn't do as well as Tom and Jerry in North America, even though both films are available online day and date when they hit theaters. And even though it costs more to see Raya and the Last Dragon, I think, did Tom and Jerry charge $30? I don't think so.
0: Uh, no, and okay. So since we're talking about Raya and the Last Dragon, and you're mentioning the fact that it was available on Disney Plus, if you paid an extra thirty dollars, so you not only had to be a subscriber to Disney Plus, you also had to pay thirty dollars to see it. So they call it a premium offering. Uh, however, here in the U.S., uh, Cinemark, uh, Cineplex in Canada, Cinepolis, uh, which
1: is a big player in, and and then uh, and and who's a big player in Latin America? Well, Cinepolis at Cinepolis, right? And Harkins, right? They did not show Rhea. Why? Because Disney played tough.
0: Yeah, Disney said, you know, not only are we going to open it day and date, but you know those terms that we had before the pandemic? We want those same terms now. So we'd like to have our cake and release things day and date and also eat it too by charging you the same amount of money, almost as if the product is exclusive only to you. And basically cinema operators said, yeah, no.
1: So that's one big reason why it didn't do as well as Tom and Jerry or do even better. It wasn't playing in a bunch of theaters because Disney played hardball. We'll have to see what happens. But New York did open up. That was very exciting. New York City theaters were closed for 50 and a half weeks. It almost makes me wish they waited another week and a half so we could say one year to the day. But but it's nice to see movie theaters open. Hopefully people are going and being safe. But uh, Ray and the Last Dragon did make money. It made $26 million in its opening week. The number 3 movie around the world is Endgame, the Andy Lauer comic thriller. That made another $21 million. That Did get good reviews, that's what we heard, and it seems to be picking up at the box office. The word of mouth is good. That's about to pass $100 million. Then below that is Tom and Jerry, the flick we talked about. That made $18 million this week. It's approaching $60 million worldwide. Back to China, where Detective Chinatown 3 uh, that's set in Tokyo's Chinatown, by the way, that made another $17 million. That's at $737 million worldwide. So High Mom has really lapped that movie, but they're both big successes. Then there's also A Writer's Odyssey and Action Fantasy. We don't know the budget, but it made $12 million this week and it's at $160 million. We figure it's probably profitable, but we don't know. If you know the budget, tell us.
0: Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D I R T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888 567 SAND. That's 888 567 7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at showbizsandbox. And we're on Facebook. You can like our Facebook page facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox now we actually have a somebody who, who wrote to us on on uh on twitter should i mention that nicholas hudson ellis wrote to us or do you want to hear what he had to say uh, it's a timely with box office of course uh well it's more timely with maybe streaming i don't know because it's about apple and kill fees
1: Well, let's save it towards the end when we get to uh, the the letter section. I don't want to confuse box office too much, any more than we have, but I look forward to hearing what he has to say. We're back at the box office charts, and we're looking at another new movie. It's Chaos Walking, a sci-fi flick starring Tom Holland, based on the first in a trilogy of novels by Patrick Ness, a really good young adult writer. It made $6 million worldwide. This is another movie like Raya, where you shouldn't draw too many conclusions about people wanting to go back to the movies and why this movie didn't open great. It got terrible reviews. It sat on the shelf long before COVID. They did reshoots. They clearly did not figure it out. This is probably a movie that would have played to empty seats no matter when it was released. So don't draw too much from that. But we can look at some other movies that have been successes. New Gods, Noja Reborn, the animated film in China. That hit $71 million this week with another $5 million in the kitty. And then we have four movies that all grossed about $2 million worldwide. The Croods, A New Age, and Boonie Bears, The Wildlife, both animated films geared towards families, and then The Yin Yang Master, which you can soon watch on Netflix, if not already, and The Little Things, the Denzel Washington flick. So worldwide box office is happening, movies are making money, and when they're not, there's often reasons beyond the fact that people are wary about going back to the cinema. But that is the big issue. It's been very hard for movie theaters, and we can see that because Alamo Drafthouse declared bankruptcy. This really seems to be just a financial choice to do some reorganization. New well, owners are it, taking also over. Helps,
0: it also helps them get out of some leases that, you know, were right, probably long term. Yeah.
1: Right. New owners are taking over. It's a legal step to improve their financial footing. They're going to be shutting down some underperforming locations. They have about 40 in all and founder Tim League will remain involved. As will so their new that- CEO. Mm-hmm. Is that concerning? Is that you're like, no, you saw this coming?
0: Uh, I, I saw this coming if this continued. It did continue, so therefore I saw it coming. Uh, Tim yeah, Lee right. was on the, the CJ Cinema Summit uh, a while back, and he said, point blank, if we cannot open soon, we will be, ha- we'll have to file for bankruptcy. There's nothing we'll be able to do. And, and sure enough, that was, you know, three months ago. And at least three months ago, it was last year for Pete's sake. So yeah, there's, no doubt in my mind that the reason they had to file was to get creditors off their back, uh, to get out of some leases that they didn't want to pay for, and they will be back. And the mm-hmm. model is not broken. It's the fact that they have been forced to shut down. That's what's, what's causing this. Well, I'll tell you what I
1: didn't see coming. AMC's had a really tough year. They've repeatedly teetered on the edge of bankruptcy, and yet CEO Adam Aaron saw his compensation nearly double. To twenty-one million dollars in a year, where most of their employees were out of work, profits fell. They barely escaped bankruptcy multiple times, and yet his compensation didn't remain the same. It doubled practically to twenty-one million dollars because, well, of course. <laughs> I mean, there's just, yeah, I mean, there's it just, just looks, no looks way. Bad. It looks no, really bad. It's not looking bad. It's a badly run company with a bad board of directors that isn't doing its job. It's absurd. It's not like old oh, bad PR. It's criminal. It's it's embarrassing, and they should be ashamed of themselves. Who well, should you know, be
0: happy? I, about- mm-hmm. I got a, uh, you know, I get these, you know, because it's celluloid junkie. I get the press releases that they uh, send out that AMC sends out, and I got one on Sunday. And a lot of these press releases are SEC filings. And you have to mm-hmm. like click twelve times to get to the filing, and it was a filing for the bonuses that some of the you know upper management got, and there was like a three point seven million dollar bonus for Adam Aaron, and I thought, well, he you know a bonus, okay, he did you know he, he ran the company into debt, but a lot of that wasn't necessarily his fault, uh, but he also did save it from filing for bankruptcy, so maybe a bonus is one way to to remunerate that, but I did not know that his pay doubled to $21 Nearly million. Nearly doubled. Right. Like 10000000 million
1: wouldn't have been enough <laughs> yeah. in a year where most of their employees were out of work. Uh, anyway, there you go. I'm sure Nomadland will play in AMC once it... it uh, well, maybe it has already. It's been yeah. playing in AMC here in the U.S., and it's set for a release in China, or at least it was. It's been getting a lot of great awards tension, but it's hit a pothole as year-old quote from Zhao, director... Chloe Zhao has resurfaced, came from years ago where she said something mildly negative about China, the country where she was born. Well, posters, trailers, articles about it started disappearing from China's Internet, and there's now a big question mark as to whether the movie will be released at all. Uh, Variety had a great little catch. They said on Weibo, a big Chinese social media app, a user posted a black and white image of Zhao with a censorship bar across her eyes paired with this comment. In China, they don't consider her Chinese, and in the U.S., they don't take her as American. She's truly in nomadland.
0: <laughs> and I like that's what a, you did great... there with with potholes, since it's about, you know... Yeah, thank you very much.
1: Yes, yes. It's <laughs> a little goofy. There you go. But, you know, she's hot for award season, and we got another award season coming up, don't we? We've got the Grammys.
0: Well, okay, so the Grammy Awards are next week, or what is going to pass for the Grammy Awards. Uh, And uh, they're they're Sunday night with all sorts of acts zooming in their performances. And if the Grammys are happening, that really must mean, Michael, you have finalized your pick for the best album of 2020, right? I mean, let's Mm -hmm. face it, the Grammys do not happen until you call up the Recording Academy and say, all right, I've listened (laughs) to all of them. I'm done. You can hold the Grammys. Now, Michael, what (laughs) is your top album of the year? And did it get a Grammy nomination.
1: Yeah, you know, every year I give myself the personal deadline of doing my best of the year list before the Grammys air. That's usually in January, so I give myself a few extra weeks. This year, I had till March and I needed it. The Grammys have eight albums up for album of the year. Cholombo by Jenny Aiko, Black Pumas, Coldplay, Jacob Collier, Haim, Dua Lipa, Post Malone, and Taylor Swift with Folklore. Two of my albums are on that list. Haim and Dua Lipa are both in my top uh, 20. I have about 55 albums from jazz, country, pop, folk, classical, and so on. Not too much overlap this year, but you will find about 15 acts who are up for Grammys who are also on my list from this year and last year because they work on a different calendar than we do. I'm on a, a you know a chronological calendar, and they're on a weird August or September to September Thing. Anyway, this year, Dua Lipa and Fiona Apple and Bad Bunny are big nominees, but my favorite album of the year didn't register with the Grammys at all. It's uh, been around by a girl called Eddie. If you like Dusty Springfield, uh, class acts like that, Amy Mann, she echoes a lot of great talent. The Pretenders. It's a really terrific, inviting, warm album. It's my top pick of the year. We've got a list of all my favorite music from the year. Like My number two album is the greatest hit set, The Beastie Boys, Beastie's Boys Music. I think it's tremendous. And Fiona Apple is in at number three, and Bad Bunny, and The Mavericks are right below that. So if you are interested in music at all, check out my list. Uh, we've certainly been checking out the Critics Awards. What happened? The Critics' Choice Awards were announced last night. Who was the big winner?
0: Well, I'm going to go with... I didn't watch them because I, you know... Who watches them? You know, I will say this. uh, In a conversation that uh, IndieWire held, Ann Thompson and Eric Cohn uh, were talking about, and and several of their their journalists and and other uh, journalists were talking about how the Critics' Choice Awards were becoming more important than the Golden Globes, at least in terms of getting people to the theaters. Uh, And so I guess... Somebody's watching them. Uh, Nomadland won best picture, director, adapted screenplay, and cinematography. Chadwick Bozeman again as best actor for Ma Rainey. I think he's going to run the run the boards here. I, well, I you know, you
1: may, you may well be right. I don't think it's a given. I mean, uh, we, he's got a competition from Sound of Metal and other movies, but we shall see.
0: Kerry uh, Mulligan, best actress for Promising Young Woman, and Minari was the best international film.
1: Right, so it gets people talking, gets people to say, hey, I really do need to check out Minari and Promising Young Woman. That's good. But what really matters to me are the guilds. The guilds are where the real action is. We have the PGA nominations. They came out just as we were going to press, if that's the way to talk about a podcast, just as we were going to tape. I guess that's what we should say. And they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten movies, all of them small. Why? Because there were no big blockbusters basically released in 2020, were they? I mean, they could have honored Tenet, but they didn't. What movies did they
0: honor? Well, this year, uh, and I guess was this in some alphabetical order? Maybe. Uh, Borat's subsequent movie yep, film. Yep, yep, Judas and the Black Messiah. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Mank. Minari. Nomadland. Ding, ding, na- ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that's going to win. <laughs> uh, one Night in Miami. Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and finally, The Trial of the Chicago 7.
1: Well, I'll tell you this, if you are going to make a best of the year list, if you are voting in the Oscars, those are 10 films you need to watch, no doubt about it. There are others, there are great documentaries, which I don't think they typically honor in their best, uh, Uh, Films of the Year production, but they should. But there are a lot of great documentaries this year, but those are certainly the movies that are in play. The Annie Awards also honored movies. They honor animation in film, TV, commercials. Uh, They basically have more than 30 categories, including student films, which is great. They also have their best uh, feature uh, categories are broken down from big budget and small budget. So they have a separate category for small budget animated films like Wolfwalkers and so on. But just as I said for the other guilds, they should not have a special category for all these different genres. They can do that, but they need to have an overall top pick. It's cool to break out the big movies and the little movies, but you know, if some big film like uh, Onward or you know, Trolls World Tour can't make the top list because Wolf Walkers made that push. You know, there's no reason to protect the big budget movies. If you want people to pay attention, you need to make your overall top picks. And they're not doing that at the Emmy Awards. They honored Onward and Soul and the Croods and the Willoughbys and Trolls World Tour. Really? And then they have the best indie features, which does include a Shaun the Sheep movie, Ride Your Wave, and Wolfwalkers. Any of the Calamity Jane, which I've never heard of. Ongaku, Ongaku. On Gaku. On Gaku. R Sound, Rock and Roll, you know, these are movies, some of which I have not heard of. And if they made the top list, I would be a lot more excited or pay attention and say, you know what? I need to watch that movie. So they failed in their attempt to try and spotlight movies that deserve it. They need to have a top pick. The same is true for, where's the next one? The Saturn Awards. They have 22 categories, like Best Comic to Feature, Best Sci-Fi, Best Fantasy, Best Horror. Great but they need a top overall pick. Maybe the closest to that is their best director nominations, if you go with the auteur theory. They do have seven nominees in that category, and they're honoring movies that aren't even really sci-fi or movies you'd think about, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But there is Tenet and The Invisible Man and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker and Mulan, Doctor Sleep, The Old Guard. You can see what movies matter to them, but I really do think they should be making a top pick. They're not doing it, and I think it's a big deal because they're missing out on a chance to influence people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you on the best of show for the Annie Awards because, and you know, I I really can't speak to to sci-fi. I don't know how you would do that, but uh, and you probably they have have
1: categories. They just have categories like best comic to movie feature, best sci-fi feature, best fantasy, best horror, and they have five movies or so. They just do a best in show, like you say.
0: Well, and for instance, you know the Annie Awards Best Feature, okay? Well, you've got Trolls Ward World Tour on that list, a name and that's that a is best
1: big budget feature, really,
0: right? That's and, the, yeah. and yet, you also have Wolf Walkers on the indie feature list. But you know what? If you were to put uh, Wolf Walkers up against Trolls World, World Tour, who do you think would win that race? It would be Wolf Walkers. Exactly. So, yeah, I in, in that regard, I do think it's a big deal that they don't have one giant category or one best of show category that says okay all of those categories aside here's here's who we uh here's who we pick as as the best of the well
1: i see what you're doing here you're saying it's time for big deal or big whoop our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense sperling what is our first
0: story well you know i was actually uh kind of segueing us into big dealer big whoop and our first story is about toronto which has a new multi-purpose arena set to open in 2025 we should be out of covid by then again right (laughs) i'm kidding of course everybody knows we'll be in the next pandemic by 2025 anywho uh it's a new venue designed to showcase concerts and sports and will optimally seat around 7,000. wait what the 7,000 people Yeah, one would think it would be bigger than that. Two sports teams will share the space and both are owned by the venue's owner. One is the Toronto Ultra of the Call of Duty League and the other is the Toronto Defiant of the Overwatch League. Somebody has been playing too many video games lately, Michael. Uh, That's right. These are eSport teams and thousands of fans will pay good money to watch their favorites compete against the best in the world on numerous video displays capturing all the action. No word of fans will all be seated on couches or how much, whether you get free Doritos when you come in or a free energy drink. I don't know. Big deal or big whoop?
1: I think it's a big deal. So, this venue will have concerts and other events, but it was built to house esports teams. Now, we've had esports sell out Madison Square Garden and other huge arenas in the US and around the world. To my knowledge, this is the first one built in North America, if not the entire Americas, that is devoted simply to esports, to housing two big teams, that's kind of mind-blowing to me. That's how far esports have come. They are building, you know, we have basketball arenas, we have hockey arenas, we have football and baseball. Now we have esports arenas. And you know what? They didn't get a lot of public funding to do it either. Take that, Yankees. So that's very fascinating to me. That's a big sign of how far they have come.
0: But you know what's going to happen is uh, Sony will come out with its next PlayStation. They'll have to knock it down and start all over again. <laughs> okay, That's now the payments. Good. Yeah, yeah. Finally, finally, one joke. <laughs> if I was a part of any writers' room, they that this moment they, they, will live in. They give them a raise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To, you know, from from intern to actually, maybe we'll think about paying you. Uh, okay, so the payment service Square is snapping up Jay Z's artist-owned streaming service title remember title so Mm -hmm. i guess it's not so artist owned anymore i don't know i I guess or maybe they own the other half. i don't know title faces increased competition as amazon soon spotify and others also offer premium sound quality at a lower price than its 20 dollars cost also the service claims a paltry 3 million users but media reports suggest that 3 million you know user number is inflated and the company title has never reached even 1 million users on the plus side Artist royalties were at one point claimed to be three times more than they get from Spotify and a lot more than they get from YouTube. Jay-Z is the face of the company and will be taking a seat on the board of Square if the deal goes through. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it seems like a big whoop
1: to me. The artists who own pieces of, of title will have stock in the newer companies, so this will carry over. That's where their ownership continues. Square founder Jack Dorsey of Twitter fame, that's where he made his billion, said he wants to help artists make more money off their music. Uh, they're going to have direct-to-fan payments or direct-to-artist payments facilitated by Square. I think the idea is you have that direct connection, and then when you want to buy a T-shirt or tickets or whatever, you're going to do it through Title you know, right. through that fan connection. Uh, music Business Worldwide, which is great, says, hey, Jack Dorsey, if you want to help artists make more money off their music, how about paying royalties for all the music playing on Twitter? <laughs> how about that? <laughs> yeah, I, just, and- I can't imagine why they would buy it. It doesn't seem like you would need to buy title in order to offer that service. I don't get the play. Maybe they'll be able to leverage it and make you popular the way it never has been. It's likely they don't even have a million users So it seems like a bad move to me, but I guess they got the money to play with.
0: Now, five years ago, the BBC made BBC Three, its third channel, a strictly digital channel. It wasn't included over the air. And while most people don't make the distinction between, say, Netflix and maybe NBC, it does actually matter. Since that demotion, BBC Three has turned out hits like Normal People, Killing Eve, and Fleabag. In other words, some of the most popular programming the BBC has ever offered. So now the BBC is telling everyone, did we say digital? Uh, We mean we are delighted, another day word, to make BBC3 a broadcast channel again starting January of 2022. Big deal or big whoop? I think it's a big whoop. I think
1: the important thing is that the budget is doubling in the next two years. They are targeting 16 to 34-year-olds. That's much younger than the BBC generally trends. They're going to be broadcasting from 7 p.m. to 4 a.m., just like they did before they were yanked off the air. But they've been digital. They've been succeeding. And I just don't think it's important to have a terrestrial channel anymore. Netflix is doing just fine. BBC Three was doing just fine. I suppose it's a, a pat on the back, but is it really necessary? I couldn't figure out how this would benefit BBC Three, or what difference this would make, uh, and I still don't know. So as far as I can tell, this is really a big whoop, and just some sort of symbolic gesture to show, yeah, yeah, they're doing really well.
0: This next story was pretty much the toast of the town last week. <laughs> All anybody could tweet about and talk about oh my and God. rhyme about, and we decided we're not going to write this in a rhyming couple. Oh, I, I wanted to. I was going to do my answer
1: in a rhyming couple, but I won't.
0: Okay, well, you know, if you love Dr. Zeus's Cat in the Hat, never fear, the best-selling picture book will always be available for purchase. However, if you are interested in some more obscure titles, like If I Ran the Zoo, or Scrambled Eggs Supper, or... Super, super, I think. Maybe it's super? supper. I think it's super. Ah, okay. I'll look it up while you talk. Well, to, th- another title would be To Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street. Well, you may have to comb some used bookstores. The estate of Dr. Zeus decided to pull six titles out of circulation because they contain imagery and text that is offensive to minorities and simply hasn't stood the test of time. They'd rather not tarnish the name of Zeus by insisting on keeping books available for purchase that might well upset the kids who read them. What kids? Well, Maybe the Asian kids who might be upset to hear themselves referred to as slanty-eyed, coming from countries... why are you
1: speaking with that voice? <laughs> you know, like the like the like the, uh,
0: like the you know the uh, Grinch who stole Christmas, uh, coming from countries no one can spell. By the way, that was that was one of the uh, the the phrases, or depicted as carrying around a white man brandishing a gun like coolies serving their master. Fox News was outraged, but will Michael think? Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, I think it's
1: a big whoop. We've known for many years that uh, Dr. Seuss had some problematic imagery. He felt bad and apologized for some of the jingoistic propaganda he did during World War II, where there was hugely racist imagery of Japanese, uh, who were our enemies at the time at war. One can understand that context. But in children's books, the idea that people are outraged. Do you really want to hand a six-year-old kid to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street when what you might see is a, a white man using a whip on a person of color? do you really think, oh, that'll be fine? (laughs) We'll explain it to them. I mean, clearly, you know, and this is not cancel culture. This is the Dr. Seuss Foundation saying, we want to do what's best for our brand. We really haven't been promoting these books for many years. There's six very problematic books. We've instead of trying to change them, we're just going to say, yeah, we don't need to sell these anymore. They're not going to disappear. Anybody who wants to study them or do papers on them or analyze them can look at them and read them from now until the end of time. But they're not going to be profiting off them because Dr. Seuss is generally progressive and kind, and those don't really trend with that image, do they? So it doesn't help them as a business, and they've made a business decision on their own to pull back stuff that looked outdated decades ago, long overdue.
0: Doctor Zeus, he, him.
1: Oh, and by the way, it is scrambled eggs super because it's about a kid making scrambled eggs from the from the eggs of very exotic birds. That was the trend of that story where Peter T. Hooper gets to make scrambled eggs using all sorts of crazy eggs. So it's
0: birdicide. And
1: well, they... if you're if if you're a vegan, you don't approve, but that's not why they're pulling it.
0: Keep going. Okay. <laughs> well, is SoundCloud leading a revolution in how artists get paid for their streaming music? the indie-friendly service is adopting what it calls a fan-powered royalties. And I guess if it's just one, it would be royalty. For each user of the site, money will be paid out strictly based on the music each user listens to. This should favor smaller acts and niche genres like classic and jazz. Classical and jazz, I should say. Wait a second, jazz is not a niche. (laughs) Uh, If you, uh, by the way, listen to All you listen to is classical music. All the money you paid for the streamer would be split among those artists. Roll over Chuck Berry, Beethoven is back in town. The standard formula is to simply take all the money generated and split it up among acts based on, well, popularity. In that case, folk like Drake and Ariana Grande get by far the most while Miles Davis makes pennies. SoundCloud is gambling this stance will be good for business and bring more indie acts to its site. But is this a big deal or a big whoop? It's a very big deal. People have been talking about this
1: for a while. There's an argument that it's extremely complicated to put into practice, and there's reasons why SoundCloud can do it better than, say, Spotify. It would be very complicated. Others say it won't make that big a difference for indie acts, but that doesn't seem to be quite true. If you go on to Spotify and listen to a girl called Eddie's been around all month long and listen to nothing else, in theory, all the money you spent for your for your streaming service that month would go to a girl called Eddie. Uh, so that's kind of cool. The people you listen to get the money you spend. It won't change people's lives, but it will increase in very small niche acts based on the people that listen to them. They'll start to get a little bit more, and those pennies and dollars really add up when you're talking about people you know, struggling to get by. So I think it's very interesting. We'll have to see how it pans out, and we'll have to see what other people are doing. Lots of changes in the music biz. For example, Billboard, they are now incorporating official music video streams on Facebook into its formula for the charts. So when I get a notice from Bad Bunny, as I do on Facebook, saying he's got a new video, and I click on it and watch it right there, as I've done, that play will contribute to that song's popularity on the airplay charts. So. You know, you want to grab information where you can, and Billboard is doing that. You got to change with the times.
0: Well, Michael, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. And here is how this will affect you this week. This story means you will have at least one more email in your inbox each week because we are going to be joined by Ryan Fonder, who is an entertainment business reporter with the los angeles times he's uh part of the company town team and every tuesday he delivers one of the newspaper's most popular email newsletters the wide shot which covers the business of hollywood each week he dives into a major hollywood story in depth and then provides highlights of other key news as well as a calendar of upcoming events and more Recent topics include Hollywood's love of s packs, and if you don't know what an s pack is, my goodness, what are you even doing on planet Earth? A gentle mocking of the corporate buzzword flywheel, which I still think is hilarious, and a lock, mm-hmm. a, a lock, a look at the major issues facing the industry in 2021. Ryan, thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm glad you found the uh, flywheel, <laughs> the riff, uh, entertaining at least. Well, okay, it, that,
0: you know, that, that flywheel thing, I guess it was, uh, uh, I don't know who originally said it, but... I do remember the four hour Disney uh, event back in December where the new head of like, basically he's the guy that decides, do you go to streaming? Do you go to television? Do you go to movie theaters? And he used that word flywheel probably 20 times. And I honestly felt like it was a a drinking game where you had to take a drink every time he said a Harvard NBA word. If he said that, then I thought, wait, this is the person that's going to decide like where art goes. We may be in trouble. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, we're still, you know, we're still working from home. So we could do that drinking game if we want. That's true. So, we couldn't but do it. I, I have to file stories later somehow.
1: Yeah. I better hold off since I'm in my car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so, Ryan, you've been doing the, the newsletter, The Wide Shot, since January. How do you measure success? And I guess more importantly, how do your bosses measure success? Of course, the number of signups. <laughs> but like, do they measure how many people open it? How many links are clicked on? What other metrics do you use? How granular are they getting so far?
2: Yeah, it's all that. And, um, it's, it's, you know, how many people get it, obviously it's how many people open it, you know, measured by percentage and then like click through rates also. But, you know, I think mine's a little less, um, dependent on the click throughs than other newsletters, because we're really trying to make this kind of a standalone thing that, um, accentuates our coverage that brings people something that they wouldn't get by just, you know, reading the newspaper or reading the website. So this is like our, you know, go direct to consumer kind of strategy. It's,
1: it's sort of a think piece. It's it's not so much about Here's a, it's not a summary of all the stuff going on last week. It's not right. linking to a bunch of other stories, uh, though there is some curation there. It's really about, we have something to say. We want you to pay attention. Here it is. How do you decide what makes sense in the newspaper versus the newsletter? And you're probably still figuring it out, of course.
2: Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like trying to figure it out week to week. You know, we have stuff that we're, you know, I have stuff that I'm thinking about constantly that's a little bit more evergreen that doesn't necessarily... Um, doesn't necessarily make sense for your typical newspaper story, but it would make sense for like you know a column or something like that. So this is kind of a, this is kind of a digestible version of that that just kind of shows up in your inbox. So like I I tend to think of things like thematically, like if something that we're writing about makes us think of something bigger that's going on trend wise, then you know we'll. We'll we'll focus in on on something like that and try to take it a little bit further and farther afield than we we would in just like a 700 word uh, article. And, and it's more than
0: just a think piece, I should say. Uh, so it's yes, it's it. There is some opinion there, but you had uh, quotes from Richard Gelfand, for instance, in your last. Uh, your last newsletter, which I guess he was in Puerto Rico on vacation. I wanted to say, Hey, right. you know, I guess you're having a different pandemic from everyone else on earth. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but uh, yeah. there is some kind of investigations going on there, but you don't need to be a subscriber to the newspaper to actually get the newsletter. It is my, that's my understanding. Although I am a subscriber to the newspaper, so I wouldn't know.
2: That's right, and everyone should be a subscriber to the newspaper. Uh, that is like the number one priority, of course. But yeah, I mean, this do it is while all, you do it while you, you still
1: can. <laughs> do subscribe while you still can. <laughs> I, I feel like newsletters are Not the new podcast. the hip? Yeah, exactly. They're the hip, cool way to reach out and build an audience. Did you pitch it to them? Did they pitch it to you? You know what? Uh, how did it come about?
2: Yeah, this was something that the company's been thinking about for a long time launching, but it didn't really get started until, you know, I I pitched it in the middle of last year. Um, and then it just kind of, Took off basically, and we were off to the races. And it launched, like you said, in in early January. And you know, we were t- <laughs> we we're kind of just going. It's definitely been working a different muscle for for me as a reporter and and writer. But it's been super super fun.
0: Now, did it take a full half year to get it going, and the technology behind it to get going, or was it like, yeah, thanks, we'll take that under advisement, and then they told you in December, yeah, that's cool, we're going to do it. It's going to be start next month. Good luck.
2: It was like anything when you pitch something right like you don't hear anything for a minute and then suddenly it's all right we're doing this let's go well i have one big
1: suggestion uh that is that at the top where it says the wide shot it should say the wide shot by ryan fonder (laughs) your name is not on there too too easily, too often to find. You have to really look for it sometimes. And it should be right at the top there, baby. Make sure you say, Hey, you know what? People keep asking me who writes this and say, work some way and get your name in there once or twice. Brand it like Tyler Perry. But anyway, so <laughs> so, so
0: although yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. is a, it, My, it is in the most important spot. It's in, it's in the uh from column. You know, like when yeah, you're looking it, it you're sorting your you know. email, it says Ryan Fonder, the wide shot. Yeah but when you're looking this at the actual true.
1: newsletter or yeah. you forward it to someone else they don't always see that. So, you know, you want it on the newsletter itself I think. But, you know, you, you know, you've got you give us a tease because we are recording on Monday, your new newsletter will be out Tuesday and that will come out before our podcast hits
2: the air. So, what's the big topic this week? Yeah, we're writing about uh, you know, Disney's annual shareholder meeting. Um, is is Tuesday, which is you know a pretty. It's usually a pretty quirky event where you know you have shareholders come up and ask the Disney executives questions, and you know some like sometimes you have kids basically asking for tours of the Pixar uh, uh, workshop, and you have kids asking you know, Bob Chay- Chay- Pick what advice they'd give a future Disney CEO. Um, But this is unusual because this basically comes almost a year after Disney parks were shut down and the company was just like totally walloped by the pandemic. So, you know, it kind of made me wonder, like, what would sort of like the WandaVision-esque alternate reality be for Disney if they hadn't been completely shut down. You know, you've got executives by the pool toasting, you know, in black and white, uh toasting billion dollar grosses for Black Widow. You've got Wonder like, Wonder Woman. Yeah. yeah Wonder yeah, Woman yeah, is yeah. HBO. Oh, I beg your pardon, yeah. Right. But they would have had like full cues for Rise of the Resistance, to all the parks. And then, like, so you hear you know, the voice through, of Anthony Fauci through the transistor radio crackling through. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, oh no, what's going on? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's we're, ca- we're kind of riffing on that a bit, just how much things have changed for, for Disney um, and how differently it's viewing the, the, the movie going business right now. I don't know if you guys saw what JAPIC was saying at uh, the Morgan Stanley conference last week, yeah. but uh, it's pretty, interesting. Like, pretty why, interesting. Why suddenly do
1: you not want that $11 billion that you made? <laughs> you know, the you know, 11 movies that made a billion dollars. Why
2: do you think that's over with, Bob? Yeah. I don't quite get that. They're in such a tough spot. And he actually acknowledged this in his quotes where they say they don't want to cut the legs off of theatrical, but they are in this kind of weird position where they have to, you know, redirect the content uh machine towards streaming, but they also, you know, are making or in normal times would be making huge amounts of profits from theatrical.
1: I don't see any downside to having a movie be a eight hundred one billion dollar grossing worldwide smash hit and then coming to Disney Plus. I don't think anyone would say, ah if it doesn't come directly to disney plus i'm not interested but they'd feel cheated the idea that people are impatiently looking at their watch the second a movie comes out and saying why can't i watch it on hbo max that's that's their fantasy not viewers movies already come very very quickly to streaming services and to they used to think a year was too soon for vhs and dvd now they're like oh people don't want to wait three weeks that's crazy it's like no actually they're
2: okay no, maybe, okay they'll, maybe they'll only have to wait 45 days instead of 90 days. Well, that's the magical future. number. Yeah. That seems to be, yeah, 45 seems to be the new 90 you're talking about.
0: Well, yeah. what I would say is uh, to that, well, first of all, my, my joke about, uh, you know, who would be asking questions at the Disney shareholder meeting is going to be Mark Zerati, the CEO of Cinemark, going, uh, Mr. Chapek, I'm wondering uh, about the film rental terms on Raya and the Last <laughs> Dragon. Can we, you know, yeah. uh, but that's another story. Uh, but, you know, I kind of somebody who says oh, we don't want to cut the legs off of exhibition or we don't want to cut the legs o- out from under uh, movie theaters. I would say this: you're now forty percent. Prior to the pandemic, you were forty percent of the box office. How healthy an industry do you have when forty percent of the box office can bring down the the entire other side by one company making a decision can literally gut another industry, and that's exactly well, what's, what could happen is if you have forty percent of the films basically taken away from movie theaters
1: they have they haven't said black widow won't go theatrical yet we'll have to see what they do i just am worried by his suggestion that you know somehow moviegoers suddenly don't want to go to the movies and they
0: demand them in their homes no what i mean is like you the justice department was fine to have 20th century fox merge with disney that wasn't going to be a problem and yet it's so much a problem that one entire multi-billion dollar industry can go away in the blink of an in less than a year i mean it's not a buggy whip problem in other words the buggy whip was outdated movie theaters aren't outdated the model is not broken
2: it's the the business you just have to show movies yeah. right
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> That's
2: the
1: sort of thing you talk about in your newsletter. Well, last week you talked about uh, streaming video services and you compared the battle between all these different companies to March Madness, and the idea that eventually we're gonna get down to maybe a final four that really dominate the service. Uh, Who came up with March Madness? And tell us what you mean by that. Do you think there will be just (laughs) about four companies that will survive, or do you think really it could be more than that? You talk about a lot of looming consolidation among those smaller players, because if they wanna survive, they're gonna have to get bigger.
2: Yeah. And I don't even know if I mean necessarily that only four will survive. It'll just be like those four will really dominate the the playing field. You know, you've got Disney plus and, um, and the, the big one, Netflix, you know, that small company that seemed like they're pretty much a lock for, 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 uh, making the grade. But then it's like those last two or three, you know, slots at the, the, the final round seem like they're, pretty much up for grabs still and we don't really know how it's going to play out so i just thought that would be a fun way to talk about the um the, the streaming competition because it's not really like it's the the streaming wars analogy is really dramatic but it doesn't really work for me like it doesn't quite uh capture um what exactly we're expected to see play out
1: There doesn't have to be a winner and a loser. Mm -hmm. Both Netflix and Disney Plus and HBO Max and probably Paramount Plus are going to flourish. You know, they're going to be fine. Uh, Whether smaller players can survive is a certain question. I guess if you're looking at consolidation, you might say, well, MUBI, and Criterion are these two little art houses. They need to get together because they can't both survive. They're not going to both get people to shell out five or ten dollars a month. Maybe you think yeah. Britbox and Acorn serve the same audience. And they need to combine because they can't both get people. When I did a list of the top, you know, streaming stuff, you know, HBO Max, Netflix, Paramount, Peacock, Disney, Hulu, Britbox, Acorn, uh, Discovery, you're looking at about $75. That used yeah. to be people's cable bill. They can't, they're not going to, people aren't going to fork all of that out, are they?
2: Right, right. Yeah, we always joke that, you know, if only there were some, you know, easy to understand <laughs> monthly fee that you could pay to get all this content. Yeah, I think but, they should probably start that. that. joke. I that joke every day.
0: I make that joke every week. And I'm like, you could call it like well, cable. Because, you know, it comes <laughs> into your house with really? cable. Yeah. Um. But you, uh, in talking about consolidation, you kind of mentioned that uh, HBO and, and, well, NBC, everybody, nobody Dares say Warner, but uh, or Warner Media, but HBO okay. and and NBC really, NBC and uh, who was the m- maybe Paramount? Who was the other one? Uh, well, maybe it was a, a NBC and HBO that you could actually get those two services together, Peacock and HBO Max. But then mm-hmm. wouldn't that mean that you had to combine NBC Universal and Comcast with Warner?
2: What? Yeah, that's something that uh, a lot of analysts have speculated about. Like you talk to you know the Greenfields and Moffat Nathansons of the world, you know, eventually seeing those two companies actually coming together. Were they form. drunk <laughs> at
1: the time? Was it over drinks?
2: <laughs> no, this is something that people seriously talk about, but it's it would be a long way off, obviously. Well, I mean, Universal yeah, and Warner that.
1: merging into one company. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not while not while Biden's president. <laughs>
0: I mean, look, yeah. uh, record
1: the
2: questions would be interesting for sure.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, they didn't mind Disney and Fox, so I guess anything yeah. is possible.
0: Well, okay. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to get, go off on a tangent there, but it was one of those like, what? Disney? I mean, uh, Universal and, and and Warners? That just seems so big. But it happened with record companies, so it could happen the, the other way so, around.
1: So Ryan, do you find yourself doing a story and then thinking about the, the conversation you have with reporters about it or what you guys think about it? Uh, suddenly comes to life. You say, "Hey, I can write about this in the newsletter because it's I can't push myself into the story, but I have something to say about this. Something to step back a little, you know, perspective that you can't always do day to day, or it's not your role in that case. You're just right. trying to get the news out there. That must be happening more and more over the last few weeks.
2: Well, yeah, in so many cases, you're just trying to you know report the news. By the time the print deadline hits, and you don't necessarily have time to really think about, oh, like what does this really? Big picture, we try to do that as much as we can. But you know, if we have something that, we're, that we have to say after the fact, after it's been able to digest for a minute, then we can really—that's um, when we can kind of, kind of address it.
1: When you also asked a question about how can people. Spend hundred and fifty dollars on streaming services. You have a breakdown. Most people pay like twenty or fifty or 60, and it gets smaller and smaller. And there is like a three percent of people pay a hundred and fifty dollars a month for streaming. Surely that must include a TV bundle. They must be pure over the top,
2: like one of those um, Hulu Live. Uh, exactly, um, play, right? Because yeah, I am about we're about to
1: cut we're about to cut out our cable bill. We have Spectrum here in Alabama, and it's a uh, two hundred and ten dollars a month. And we're going to go to YouTube TV and a package of streaming services, and Wi-Fi, and it's going to cost about $130 a month. So we're cutting our cable bill by $80. We are not cutting the cord. We're not stopping to watch TV. We're just enjoying the fact that there's some competition and some alternatives for my local cable company, and now we can cut our cable bill by $80 a month. So I don't think people are giving up on TV. Nobody's cutting the cord. They're just enjoying the fact that they can get the same stuff for
2: less. Right, right. It's not exactly it's more like cord shaving or just, you know, adopting Exit. another cord. Like,
0: well, exactly. I, and I noticed that the uh March Madness piece was in the uh, Wednesday LA Times, the print yep. the print edition. And uh, you'll have to forgive me because sometimes the newspaper is taken from me by certain family units uh <laughs> uh family members uh, before I get to it and then I never get to see the Wednesday paper. Is every single newsletter that comes out on tuesday then printed in in the wednesday edition
2: no i mean that one worked particularly well for print because you could really take that bracket that we came up with and blow it up in the print edition and you know you can include a call to action with this like you know some readers actually did take a picture and send me back like the brackets that they filled out for the (laughs) streaming service it's just kind of funny um you know, someone did have HBO Max at the at the very end in the center. Oh uh, wow! Oh. They'd be happy think, to hear so.
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they,
2: they, they're going for they're going for the odds. You I know, they can't choose. Exactly, you're not going to make any money if you just bet on Netflix (laughs) Netflix and Disney. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well,
0: now, okay, so Michael, you kind of started us off before I went off in a million tangents as I as as I am wont to do about talking about newsletters being the new podcast. Uh, But you know, between Substack being you know a platform that allows for paid subscriptions uh, to newsletters, is there any thought that that the LA Times might? Start doing that, saying, okay, you have to be a subscriber to get a specific newsletter, or this newsletter is a paid newsletter?
2: I don't know. I know some people have experimented with that. I think um, I think Vanity Fair's uh, politics guy does, uh, does a little bit of that, or experimented with that. But it's not something that I'm aware of. If I, if I were a brand name on the level of Tyler Perry, I could probably charge for our, our newsletter, but we'll have to see how, how it goes. You'd have to wear a different outfit, though. That's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Ryan, I know we've been trying to uh, get you on for a long time. We actually mention your stories quite often, and we always say, oh, is this the story we should we have had Ryan on, but we're waiting for like the really big story. Uh, and so thank you very much for, for coming on to talk about your new newsletter over at the LA Times. It's
2: called The Wide Shot. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, just go to latimes.com wideshot wide shot. will sign right up.
1: Well, that was great for Ryan to join us. It was uh, it was great to catch him on the show and talk about his newsletter. I don't know if I agree. I don't think there's any 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 magical formula that the New York Times has done with the Daily. It's just a podcast talking about the the day's news. We
0: just, we weren't actually uh, recording when we talked about uh, that.
1: No, that's but, true. We were we're just talking about the uh, all the other podcasts and stuff out there. You're right about that. I apologize, but yeah, I think like there's no reason why the Washington Post and the LA Times and anybody who wants to could do their own news podcasts. It's just a question of doing it well it's like thinking well abc does the evening news cbs and nbc can't uh no there's no yeah i don't know how much room there there is well i think i think the daily is horrible so i think there's plenty of room i think it's it's (laughs) i think it's dreadful i think it's actually really really bad
0: uh that said uh ryan's email again you can read you know uh subscribe to it uh at the LA Times and we highly suggest it it's a really really good it's one of the most informative newsletters i get each week
1: i don't know how to i don't know how to segue into you into the hold steady <laughs>
0: Oh, you know what? I I meant to bring that up with Ryan because he mentioned the hold steady. Uh, I totally forgot. And I put it there in the show notes specifically to remind, because I forgot, you know, I had forgotten about this group. And he says, if you're not familiar with these Brooklyn rockers, think of ACDC and the E Street Band with a bellowing beat poet for a lead singer. And then I listened to them again. And the the lead singer looks like he should be teaching me like Your high
1: school math teacher. Yeah, your high school math
0: teacher. And I was like, you know what? There's hope for me yet. I can be a rock star. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, that, well, that's exactly. the
1: whole—that's the whole shtick of the whole steady. Uh, but that band is still an ongoing concern. But some people have died this week. It's time for the obituary section. Uh, they're all sad, of course, but especially sad when something like this happens. The Nomadland sound mixer, Michael Wolf Snyder, died at the age of 35. He worked on Nomadland, he's an award-winning sound mixer, and he's done great work for a number of people, but his most notable collaborations were with director Chloe Zhao, for whom he worked on The Rider and Nomadland. And you saw very sweet tributes pour in from the people he worked with, uh, like Francis McDormand and many other people. Zhao told an interesting story. She said, Michael suggested they keep recording the room tone for longer than necessary. When you do a scene and you're about to record, You always begin with capturing the room tone so you have the warmth and the ambience of the room before you launch into action and do the dialogue and stuff. And he said, hey, let's do it for a little bit longer than we need to. It sort of created a moment of calm and contemplation when most of the time when you're running around on the set, you got your heads cut off like a chicken, you know, everybody's ah, and you do a scene and you move on to the next. And they they created this moment of everybody pausing and sort of catching their breath and then launching into the scene that they were doing, which is sort of very sweet. She says, every time you hear think about the room tone, think about Michael. Uh, but he did die by suicide, and his father is a psychiatrist, and he released a long statement. We have a link in our show notes. But he said, I am a psychiatrist who was not able to save his own son, partly because he would not share the depth of his pain. But I know that most people with this condition, severe depression, which Michael dealt with all his life, they will recover with the proper help and support. I hope that the shocking nature of Michael's death Will alert others to speak up, risk being vulnerable, and seek the help that they need. I know a lot of people who deal with uh, depression uh, medically or through therapy and other techniques. And so, please, it's like anything else hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes. uh, If you're dealing with it, you should get help and support because it's out there for you.
0: Also, dying this week at the age of 73 is an icon of reggae, Bunny Whaler. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because remember, Bob Marley. And the Whalers. Guess what? The Whaler part was Bunny Whaler. And originally, it was
1: just the Whalers, and it wasn't just Bunny Whaler. But yeah, it was. It was a band with him and Peter Tosh and Bob Marley, and then Island Records snapped them up. And suddenly, they were rebranded. And suddenly, he's like, oh, "Wait, I'm the backing act? No, no, no." <laughs> so yeah, that wasn't so cool for Bunny. But uh, you know, they did great music together. He is the surviving member of the Whalers. Uh, Bunny and Bob Marley met when they were little kids. And then when Bob's mother moved in with Bunny's dad, they kind of became stepbrothers. So that's fascinating. But he had a long, vibrant career outside of the Whalers on his own. If you want to honor Bunny Whaler, I'd say start streaming or pick up a copy of Black Heart Man, his solo album from 1976. Bob and Peter Tosh appear on it. It's a landmark of reggae music, really a landmark of music overall.
0: Well, and I guess you have uh, somebody named Michael Stanley dying at the age of 72. He is uh, a Cleveland icon. So a lot of icons dying this week.
1: Well, yeah, When if we're talking about them usually. So if you're like us, the name rocker Michael Stanley uh, didn't register. He was barely a one-hit wonder. He began as a folky. He embraced arena rock and scored a minor top 40 hit way back in 1983 with He Can't Love You. It peaked at number 33. And I guess if you're the right age, you might hear the song and say, oh, yeah. But if you're from Cleveland or the Midwest in general, Michael Stanley is a huge deal. His first two solo albums included contributions from Joe Walsh of the Eagles, saxophonist David Sanborn, and the great Todd Rundgren. Stanley became a regional star thanks to other songs like Midwest Midnight and filled up arenas in the area for years. He parlayed that local fame and distance as a TV and radio personality. He spearheaded the successful push to bring the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to Cleveland, and he was hosting an afternoon drive time slot on the radio right up to the last few weeks of his life before dying from lung cancer. It's just cool to know that there are still regional acts, people who can flourish and survive for many years without ever breaking through nationally. You sort of feel like every part of the country and the world is the same. Everywhere you go, there's a a CVS and a Walmart and a McDonald's and a Wendy's and whatever, and every town feels the same. Not true. There's still vibrant local stuff happening all over the country, and Michael Stanley is a great example of that. There's cool stuff everywhere you look.
0: And in fact, uh, I, I thought I pasted something in here about Henry Goldrich. And you know what? You might not know his name unless you were maybe a, a big rock act, a big, big musical act, or from New York, because he ran Manny's Music, which was owned oh, by yeah. his father. Yeah, his owned by his father initially. It was in business for 75 years. It closed in 2009. Yeah and uh this guy the last
2: depression yeah
0: yeah he he sold musical equipment to everybody because for years gibson and and fender and any musical equipment would be sold through these musical shops and not necessarily given directly to a rock star or a musician and so these companies would rely on people like henry goldrich to kind of push their products onto certainly some well-known acts and he he would like Turn to to uh like eric clapton and uh god who was the other person like basically big guitarists and say you know these wah-wah pedals you know you can you should really look into these you know (laughs) I, i think now of course they're like a staple everybody uses pedals uh and he had this wall of fame that i mean you name the artist and he was they were named the rock artist they were probably on uh on his wall he sold an electric violin to yitzhak perlman I mean, he was kind of known as this kind of ornery guy who, you know, one day in 1985, it was a particularly busy day. And David Bowie and Mick Jagger came in together to get some stuff. And it was causing such a commotion. He was like, I'm losing sales. Get these people out of here. Get these, get these, you know, he was cutting, he was nice. He sold them some stuff, but he would tell Bob Dylan, oh yeah, take that guitar. Look, go in the back and play around with it. Come on. I don't have time for this. Uh, <laughs> and you know, Ella Fitzgerald. He was a character. He was yeah, a character. Ella Fitzgerald would babysit for him. So, you know, West 48th street, the, was uh, where the music store was. It, it was a, uh, and he died uh, in his eighties uh, in February. I think it was 88, Uh, but again, somebody who you might not otherwise know, but if you were a rock musician between, you know, 1965 and 1995, you knew exactly who he was. Very cool. And, uh,
1: that's cool to hear about. And I want to hear about our listener email. We got an email, didn't we talking about Apple plus or what
0: was it? So yeah, Nicholas Hudson Ellis, who, uh, is in Bangkok, Thailand. He sent us a, a tweet. Uh, I say that as if I don't really know what a tweet is, but he he kind of reached out to us on Twitter and he said, thanks for talking about kill fees on the past episode. I still can't get my head around this story. Did Apple simply end up buying CODA, which is the film that won the Sundance Film Festival? Did they end up buying CODA for worldwide rights, but excluding holdout regions like Denmark and Italy? And the answer to that question is, uh, I don't know. That's what everybody wants to know. That's literally- well, what. Ha-
1: What's happening is that movies that get made get made because certain companies commit to it in advance. They say, here's our project, and they get money from a French TV station or a German uh, film company, and they say, we will put up half a million, or we will put up this amount of money, and we get rights to that film in our territory. So that's how they pre-sell some movies in certain territories, or in a lot of territories. That's how smaller movies often get made. So once that movie was made, it went to a film festival like Sundance and became a big hit. And suddenly everybody loved it. And there was a bidding war for that movie. Those companies already had the rights to the movie in their territory, but the filmmaker could sell off the rights to North America and other countries that were still up for grabs. But what happened was a streamer stepped in and said, we want worldwide rights to that movie. So Apple or Amazon or Netflix can sometimes bigfoot these companies. They step in, they buy the worldwide rights, and then they push out. The other companies, they already had the right to the movie in, say, France, but Netflix says, no, 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 we're showing it in France, and they want to buy back the rights from that company, not paying a lot of money for it. They want to sort of, you know, we'll get your money back, you'll get your money back and whatever, but it's going to be our movie now. So those companies took a risk, they gambled on a movie, they pre-bought the rights before, just based on a screenplay or an idea. And then when the movie became a hit at a festival, they were pushed out of it and suddenly they don't have the rights to their territory anymore. That's the issue that's happening. That's what's so troubling because basically they're taking all the risk and getting none of the rewards. If a movie becomes a big hit, and HBO Max wants to step in, or Netflix, or or Amazon, or somebody, uh, those companies can not get it. But if a movie is not a big hit, then they're like, oh, fine, sure, you can have it in France. And you know, the movie wasn't a success. We weren't able to sell it off for a huge worldwide right to a streamer. So they're sort of taking the risk to help a movie get made, and they're not reaping the rewards of having that film for their territory. So What is happening now is that agents are suggesting, hey, we're going to build in kill fees so that we can do this more easily. Right now, it's a big mess. Amazon steps in. They want the movie. They got to negotiate with the people in France. They got to negotiate with the people in Germany. And they want to say, let's make this easier. We're going to insert a kill fee so that if we decide to take the rights back from you, you get, you know, 10 percent above whatever you paid even if right. they want to keep the movie. So this is the new the new uh, contract ruling or contract details that they're suggesting be worked into all future contracts so that it's easier to kick those companies out once a movie's got a bigger player stepping in. So it's pretty ugly.
0: Yeah, and it also applies to, uh, you know, if you're, you know, somebody who's... Fee is normally three million dollars to do a movie. And you say, okay, well, I'll do it for 1.5 and I'll, you know, when when the movie's a success, I'll get my, you know, I'll get the production bonus or the performance bonuses. Uh, so when it makes a hundred million dollars, I'll get, you know, two hundred thousand dollars. When it makes two hundred million dollars, I'll get, you know, another three hundred thousand, whatever the case might be, and I'll eventually get my fee. Well, that doesn't happen when you take it out of theatrical. So there's the kill fee for that as well. It's a way for and that of course you saw the issues with that. when wonder woman went straight to hbo max gal gadot and uh uh, they had to
1: rewind all those contracts and all those agreements of first linked to box office yeah it was a uh it was a big mcgill a big pain and they want to make that easier (laughs) and people are saying well wait a second why am i fronting the movie so you you can make a movie and then i get kicked out once it's a big hit that doesn't seem fair
0: It's also you. You'll also notice that you'll say, "Well, why are they? Why don't they just hold on to this movie? Why are they releasing this movie now instead of uh, after the pan? You know, wait until after the pandemic. That's a different issue. But it's also a, a part of how movies get made." You'll Denmark, Italy, France. Oh, Cody right, was right. Sold there, right? But it might not have been sold in all territories. Maybe they were waiting to finish the movie. But they've got enough money to go to a bank or go to a financier and say, "Okay, give me the bridge loan to cover the rest of the money." Well, a part of that contract, the loan contract, is okay. I'll give it to you. However, you have to release the movie theatrically by X date.
1: Right, So and they're that's- they're. they're, they're- they're, 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 Candace being, you know, forced. They have to move because right. of all these contracts. There you go. But uh, I really appreciate you reaching out from Bangkok. If there's some big hits in Thailand that we don't cover on the show, make sure you reach out again. And by the way, my friend Bill Haganah, he lived in Bangkok for many years. He might still be there now. So, hey, if you know Bill Haganah, tell him I said hi.
0: Well, since it's just uh, Nicholas Hudson Ellis and and uh, your friend living in Bangkok, yeah, they should run into each other all the time, I'm sure. Abs Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? You can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com, D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-7263. You can, of course, do what uh, Nicholas did, and you can reach out to us on Twitter, where our handle is at showbizsandbox, or you can like us on Facebook, facebook facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Again, I'd like to thank uh, Ryan Fonder, for joining us he's from the Los Angeles Times and you can uh subscribe to the wide shot over at the LA Times and we'll place a link to that in our show notes as well as links to Ryan's uh Twitter feed and uh, Twitter feed Twitter account what I, don't, I I am having trouble with these things called words today and this thing called speaking today I don't know what is wrong with me but that is why you should subscribe to us so that you can find out whether I recover from whatever whatever is ailing me today uh you can Subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Play Store, whatever it's called now, Google Podcasts, I think, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually subscribe to us. And, and any one of those podcast aggregators where you can rate and review us, please do. It does help us out when you do. Uh, all of that information, as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's also where you'll find uh, all of those links to subscribe to us, ways to subscribe to Ryan's uh, newsletter. You see what I mean? See what I'm talking about? Keep going, keep going. Well, anyway, the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Gilt has a website. to where you can find his best of the year list, his music list. Uh, But every week, he has a new and exciting website. What is it this week, Michael?
1: Well, it's not a girl called eddie.com because I just looked that up and that ain't it. <laughs> it's something <laughs> Japanese, uh, but it, I think it should be my website this week is ryanfondersthewideshot.com. That's what it should be called.
0: Oh, you know what? You will be sued in five. No, four, no,
1: he should do. He should rename <laughs> his newsletter, Ryan Fonders <laughs> the Wide Shot. That's That's the way to go. By the way, thanks for listening to Michael Giltz's Showbiz Sandbox.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what? If you can't uh, find any of uh, Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on any one of those uh, websites that he just mentioned, why not try michaelgiltz.com? Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until week next, play nice.